Welcome. You are listening to the Mindful Minute, meditations created for everyday joy. I'm Meryl Arnett, mama, meditator, and head of mindfulness for Shoreline Meditation App. This podcast is recorded from my live Monday night meditation class, where we have a brief discussion followed by a 20-minute guided meditation. If these meditations support you and your practice, please consider donating to the show to support its continued growth, new offerings, and its ever-expanding team. You can find the link in today's show notes or simply visit merylarnett.com and click on podcast. All right, y'all, let's practice. Welcome to today's episode of the Mindful Minute, you guys. Thank you for tuning in. You know, two of the most common questions I receive from students are, will meditation help me with my depression, anxiety, or PTSD? And how do I know meditation is actually working for me? Well, today, I am bringing you a fascinating conversation with one of the world's leading experts on what meditation actually does for our brains. Dr. Andrew Newberg is the Director of Research at the Marcus Institute of Integrative Health and a physician at Jefferson University Hospital. He's board certified in internal medicine and nuclear medicine, but what's most interesting is that he's a pioneer in the neurological study of religious and spiritual experiences, a field known as neurotheology. His research includes taking brain scans of people in prayer, meditation, ritual, and trance in an attempt to better understand the nature of spiritual practice. In today's episode of The Mindful Minute, Dr. Newberg is going to talk to us about his new book, Brainweaver, What happens to our brains with as little as eight weeks of meditation practice? We talk about some of the different types of meditation and which ones quote-unquote work. We talk about a myriad of ways to address the stress and anxiety of pandemic living and how to build the healthiest brain possible. This was a fun and fascinating conversation. It went so much deeper than I guessed it would. I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I did. Without further ado, let's get into our conversation with Dr. Andrew Newberg. Dr. Newberg, welcome to the Mindful Minute. Thank you so much for chatting with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the program. It is my pleasure. I so enjoyed your latest book, Brain Weaver, and I'm really looking forward to talking to you about it. But I want to start just by naming some of the previous books you've written in case listeners aren't familiar because they really jump out at me. So the the previous list includes some books, including The Mystical Mind, The Metaphysical Mind, Why God Won't Go Away, Brain Science and the Biology of Belief, and The Rabbi's Brain. And I just wonder if maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about what led you to explore this intersection of neurology and spirituality, I suppose? Sure. Well, you know, it's, it's really been something that's been on my mind since I was a kid. And, uh, you know, ever since I was very young, I was intrigued by the fact that there were so many different approaches to religious and spiritual ideas. I, I guess I, I, I didn't understand how people kind of 
came to these different conclusions. And I felt like, well, if we're all looking at the same world, why doesn't everybody just believe the same thing? It sort of made logical sense to me. And so I said, well, let me, you know, let me start with the brain. That's how we take in information and try to make sense of the world around us. And, uh, and then, you know, let me see where that gets me. And, and certainly I learned a lot about how the brain works and how the brain helps us to perceive our reality, which I guess to me was really the big question, you know, how do we know what's real and how do we, how do we assess that? How do we use our brain to assess that? But as I was, as I was looking at the science of it, I began to realize that there were other aspects that um, that really went beyond science, and it really became more philosophical and theological. I started to take courses when I was in college, looking at comparative religions, and then uh, since I had grown up in a uh, more of a Reformed Jewish uh, household, as you mentioned, the rabbi's brain, which seems appropriate uh, on the eve of Yom Kippur, but. Uh, you know, there, there was these other, you know, uh, Eastern traditions like Buddhism and Hinduism and so forth, um, which had a lot to say about the nature of our world, about the nature of reality and about how we experience that reality. And so all of this was kind of swirling in my mind as I entered into medical school and just had the incredible fortune of meeting two wonderful mentors, one in the sort of world of imaging. And, and we started to do brain imaging studies of, of all different kind of traditional things, like looking at Alzheimer's disease and, and Parkinson's and depression and so forth. But I also connected with another mentor who was in psychiatry, who had also been exploring the relationship between spirituality and the brain for, for many, many years. And he was just kind of at that point where he was trying to put together what was really going on in our brain when we meditated, when we prayed and so forth. And, uh, you know, the proverbial light bulb went off and I said, well, wait a minute, if we're doing brain scans of depression and Alzheimer's, why can't we do brain scans of religion and spirituality? And that was really what led into this whole field of, of integrative medicine and also neurotheology, the, the field that really links our spiritual selves with our biological selves. And, uh, and of course, to me, one of the really exciting aspects of neurotheology is that it ranges all the way from the very esoteric questions about the nature of reality and, you know, uh, the nature of religious and spiritual beliefs and consciousness, uh, all the way to very practical questions about, well, if we meditate or if we pray, um, how does that help us? Does that lower, uh, does that change the brain? Does it change uh, depression does it change anxiety and so forth and and that's really what's led us to, to to the brain weaver book which is to say you know how do we use this information to really help people in a more practical way but but i love that it, it it kind of can go back and forth between these very practical questions to these very esoteric questions and and there's just so it's it's a very rich field for us to continue to explore and study as we go forward yeah, I think it's fascinating. And and what I love, you know, this the newest book, Brainweaver, it feels like it clear it ties in so clearly. And also perhaps it's a bit of a departure in the sense that it's really directly speaking to the reader in terms of building optimal brain health. And you're introducing these Absolutely. Pill these, I'm going to call them pillars. Maybe is that the right word? Four pillars um, towards building it. One of them is spirituality. But will you talk us through what these pillars are? Sure. Well, and this is this is the integrative medicine perspective that we take here at, uh, at Thomas Jefferson University, which is that we we recognize that when people are either trying to stay keep a healthy brain healthy uh, and keep their body healthy as well, or when they're dealing with a particular issue. Um, we have to look at it across four pillars, four dimensions, 
and one of them is the biological, and that gets into things like brain imaging and, and what's happening in our brain, in our body, uh, the physiology of what's there. So that's the biological part. Uh, but there's a psychological part. There's the, the emotions and the moods that we have and how we process through the different things that are affecting us and the stressors on our, our brain and on our body. There's the social part too, which is always very important for us to keep in mind, which is how do we interact with other people? Do we have good social support networks? Do we, you know, are, do we have a spouse or a family member or, or children or friends or whatever who are, who, who can help us through uh, whatever issues we're facing, or can we rely on them to keep us healthy and to keep us young? And as you mentioned, the, the fourth pillar is, is the spiritual side, which is really pertains to our practices of meditation and prayer, but also our religious and spiritual beliefs and our attitudes that are fundamental to shaping who we are as individuals and how we think about ourselves, how we think about our lives. Uh, and that uh, has also been shown to be extremely important in keeping us healthy and uh, and how we engage our overall well-being. So these are really important questions for us to think about uh, in terms of how we actually, you know, how do we bring all of these different dimensions together to, um, to, to keep us as healthy as possible and to weave the, the healthiest brain possible. Yeah, you know, and I, it's interesting because it's not that any one particular element is so shockingly new, but it's the presentation of them all together that is, so to me, so eye-opening in the sense of like each of these elements are things that I think about through my day, but I tend to think about them individually, right? I think about eating in terms of nutrition. I think about my friends as, ter as in terms of fun or all of these different things, but then bringing them together in sort of this cohesive element of health or well-being, particularly in a moment when I think a lot of us don't feel well, right? it's pretty powerful. Well, absolutely. And, and uh, to sort of pick up on what you're saying, I, mean, I think what people often forget is how, how all of those dimensions of ourselves, all these pillars are really you know, very integrated. Uh, and so uh, what do we typically do when we eat? Well, we eat with our family, we eat with our friends. So there's the social piece to that. We may say grace before we eat, which is the spiritual part. The foods that we eat affect our mood and can affect the way we, you know, we feel about people. But then you could say, well, you know, what about, uh, you know, our just our diet and nutrition? Well, having a good, healthy diet and nutrition is fundamental to keeping the brain healthy. But you need that level of health if you're going to be a good meditator. You know, you want to, you don't want to eat terribly and then meditate. So, um, so all of these different parts of ourselves are kind of interwoven into each other. And that was really where the concept of brain weaver came from, because it really is a weave. It's, it's how all these different pieces come together within us that, uh, that we really have to pay attention to. And so, you know, on one hand, as you said, we can always kind of focus on one of these different dimensions at a time, but we have to recognize how intimately interwoven they all are with each other. So let's break down a few of them um, in a little bit more detail. So starting with our diet and the way that we eat and the way we think about food, you lay out some pretty specific guidelines. I love them. <laughs> they reminded me a lot of Michael Pollan. And 10, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, I was a big Michael Pollan fan and reading a lot of his work. Um, and this kind of brought me back to that. But it, you had a lot of very specific offerings in terms of thinking about what we should be eating that's good for our brain and what really isn't. 
Well, yes, and uh, you know, a lot of a lot of the research that we base the, these concepts on it does go back a bit, uh, but but also it's it's very cutting edge as well, and we're really learning more and more about the kinds of foods and the kinds of you know the, the macromolecules, if you will, the fats and the carbohydrates and the proteins that are either good for us or not so good for us, and try to then construct a diet that works best for each person. And, and I should add, you know, that that is another really fundamental point of what we try to get across in Brainweaver, which is that each person really has to figure out the best pathway forward for themselves. So while you know certain vegetables might be really terrific, you know, Brussels sprouts may be terrific. But if you hate Brussels sprouts, well, maybe you shouldn't eat them. I mean, you, you, you don't want to create a diet that you can't follow. But that being said, um, you know, what we, what we do try to get all of our patients to, and, and any patient who comes into our center uh, with any kind of brain-related issue, we often start with the diet. You know, how do we get them to a healthful diet? Uh, and, and some of the, the key pieces to that are, one, to make sure that you have the right nutrients. Um, when you're talking about keeping your brain healthy or, or helping your brain recover from some issue or problem, you want to give it the right building blocks, the right vitamins, the right minerals, and so forth. Those are all essential for us. So you want to have a well-balanced diet to make sure that you're bringing in all of the vital nutrients that you need. But then you get into well, where you know where are the macromolecules coming from, and which ones? Uh, what what the research has clearly shown over the years is that a, a diet which is high in proteins and high in good oils and fats. Those are going to be the kinds of diets that are the best for the brain. The diets which are higher in carbohydrates and a lot of the bad fats, the saturated fats that you get in a lot of processed foods uh, and, and also a lot of the red meat sometimes, you know, those are the, the, the fats that often don't work all that well and cause inflammation. And, and that's another term and another concept that we talk about in the diet as well, which is eating foods that are you know, anti-inflammatory foods, or at least avoiding the foods that are pro-inflammatory. And that includes a lot of the foods that are um, are very highly processed and have a lot of chemicals and so forth. Uh, you want to try to get to natural foods. You want to try to get to more plant-based foods, and you want to get to more uh, protein-based foods. So those are the the general goals. And then in Brainweaver, we really try to break it down. But part of what each person also needs to do is kind of look at their diet. And, and in fact, when a patient comes in to see us. Uh, and, and in many ways, we kind of wrote this book with the idea of, well, this is what we would be saying if you were sitting across the table from us. You know, what do you have for breakfast? What do you have for lunch? Let, and let's look at that and 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 kind of break it down and think, okay, you know, well, this is what you're having. You know, you're having toast at breakfast. Well, toast is just a whole bunch of carbohydrates. So, is there something we can replace that with that doesn't have that? Can we? Is there something protein based? Uh, can we get you to having a protein shake or or something or or something that's more vegetable based? that might be much healthier for you and gets you away from the carbohydrates. So going through in detail becomes also very, very important for each person to think about in terms of their diet, but, but in terms of the other aspects, the other pillars as well. And so then when we move into the second pillar of sort of the emotional, psychological state, you know, you have this sentence that just really jumped out at me. It was the first one I underlined in the chapter and Perhaps it's ridiculous that this didn't occur to me before, but the sentence simply says, emotions are a function of the brain, period. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, okay. That's so interesting because I don't think that I had ever really associated the two together, meaning I didn't associate the health of my brain with the health of my emotions. Right, right. exactly. No, I mean, uh, uh, thank you so much for 
for bringing that up because yes, I mean, I think that's a very powerful point that people really do have to keep in mind that keeping that brain healthy is going to keep your emotions better. And I mean, in some sense, we've all been there. I mean, we all know that if we get really hungry, we get, you know, kind of grumpy. Uh, if you don't sleep well, you know, you're more likely to kind of fly off the handle at somebody. So we know that if we don't take care of our brain biologically very well, that we already see the inklings that, you know, the effects that it has on our emotions, on our mood. And of course, the, you know, the research goes even further by showing, you know, if you, you know, give certain foods or, or avoid certain foods, that it can have a dramatic effect on your emotions. We, we know, for example, there's something called the tryptophan depleted diet. Tryptophan is a, a, is a key building block for uh, molecules like serotonin, uh, one of the key neurotransmitters in the brain that's involved in your mood. And if you give somebody who has had a history of depression a tryptophan depleted diet, well, they don't make enough serotonin and they will become depressed in, in a very short period of time. So, you know, I mean, these kind of, you know, ways of thinking about things, when, when you have pro-inflammatory foods, these are foods that also, you know, they kind of trigger the brain to reacting in ways that aren't very good and, and make us, you know, jittery, anxious, uh, depressed and so forth. And, uh, and the, the research really shows that by keeping a healthy diet, but just by itself, will have a dramatic impact on, on your overall mood and well-being. And then the social element, how are you talking about this right now? Yeah. How do you talk to people about being social in this particular moment in time? Well, yeah, I mean, this, this, look, this is, this is the, the real problem with the, the pandemic and, and people continue to bring this up in various ways that the more... You know, at the beginning, it was kind of like, we're going to do this for a short period of time uh, and everybody's going to kind of stay in their homes and not go out and not socialize and things like that and kind of get by. But as time has gone on, um, it really has become a very big problem for people. We recognize this with children and, and school. And of course, there's a lot of debates right now about what's the best way to, to manage that. Uh, it, it, it's a challenge. I mean, you're obviously you're dealing with a pandemic, but um, but you are also dealing with the social development, which is fundamental to how our brain works. Uh, our brain has social areas that are involved in being able to pick out facial expressions and body language and the intonations of voice and so forth. And while you know we've gotten reasonably good by you know doing these things by video and so forth. It, it doesn't replace being together, being with each other. We even have what are called mirror neurons that really reflect what another person is doing. And so when you're all together, you know, especially in a, in a you know, going back to our the discussion about spirituality, if you're all together in a, in a spiritual venue, if you're praying together with somebody, if you're meditating in a group, there's something powerful about being in that group as opposed to sitting in your own room meditating. Um, and not that sitting in your own room meditating is bad, but there's just there's there's differences in being able to do both becomes very, very helpful. And when you when you can't, it, it really is a challenge. But you know, we try to do our best and and try to do the video conferencing and and try to get out as much as 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 appropriate and reasonably possible for people to do. But um, but yes, I mean, this is this is one of the real challenges that we're facing in this day and age with the pandemic is that our social selves and our social, the social parts of our brain are, are really being stressed in many ways. And, uh, and, you know, it's one of the pillars. So hopefully we can do our best on the, on the other side. But again, you know, this has been part of the problem. Everybody's stuck at home and people are overeating. They're not exercising as well. And so all of these things kind of cycle in a bad way 
as opposed to trying to get people out and get people to connect and so forth, which helps people to cycle in a good way. But uh, you know, there are the challenges that we have to face. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And you know, on on the meditation side, I'll say especially at the beginning of the pandemic, when we were getting into maybe June, July, I had a lot of people reaching out saying like, I'm trying meditation for the first time. I'm very stressed. I have a lot of anxiety. And it was a lot of positive, like, I'm going to meditate. I'm going to feel good. But then the fall off happens very quick because we're all doing it alone. And it's really hard to not be in a community of people and support those kind of quiet introspective practices. And so then it was finding like, how do we bring a sense of community into a practice that you are essentially doing by yourself at home alone? Right. And, you know, again, uh, everything exists on a continuum and, and uh, including things like diet and nutrition, there's, you know, foods that are really good for you. And then all the way to the foods that are really bad for you, but same thing with meditation. Obviously it's better to do something, uh, even if it's for a short period of time, even if it's by yourself, uh, than doing nothing at all. But it doesn't replace the ability to make those social interactions and those social connections and to to optimize your brain. It's ideal when you can bring all of those things together. And uh, and that is the challenge, you know, hopefully, as we work ourselves out of this whole thing um, in the not too distant future, we'll be able to re-engage people more. I mean, you can see how people are just clamoring to be connected together at a at a football game or or at the beach or you know where or the church or something like that or synagogue. Um, so I mean, people are just dying to do that, and uh, and hopefully you know they'll they'll be able to do it as soon as possible. Yeah, yeah. And do it healthy and, and do it and safely, way, do right? It yeah. <laughs> right. And so then we move into this fourth pillar of spirituality, and this encompasses everything, as you've said, from from religious practices and prayer to meditation, Tai Chi, you mentioned yoga as well. And so all of this comes, how does this all come together? Um, You know, because this is, again, a question that comes up all the time in meditation is, is this religion? Can I be Christian and meditate? Can I be Jewish and meditate? And so that's a big question. Yeah, I mean, so there, there's a couple of really important points that you brought up here, and then let's start with that last one. Um, so, you know, when we talk about the spiritual side of ourselves, one of the things that we try to emphasize is that while some people have a more traditionally spiritual side or even traditionally religious side, they, they might be Catholic or Jewish or Muslim or whatever, and, and you know, that's an important part of they are, and, and that's great. And then, you know, that's something also that they can work on engaging uh, as part of their overall health and well-being, and and the research really supports that those people who are the most religious and, and engage their religion actively um, really derive benefits from that. On the other hand, for those people who don't believe in a traditional religion, that doesn't mean that you can't engage the spiritual side of who you are. And that's where um, where secular practices like mindfulness, for example, might come into play or yoga. You know, I mean, yoga, of course, derives from a very rich spiritual tradition, but usually when you, you know, go to your yoga studio, there's not a whole lot about Hinduism and 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 uh, reincarnation and things like that. It's, it's about, you know, okay, let's get into this pose and let's do that. Uh, let's breathe. So, you know, it's, it, it's great because it does still help people to make those connections and to feel connected to the body, maybe make them feel connected to the larger world in some way, even if it doesn't necessarily have a, a, a more typical or more traditional religious perspective to it. And, and of course, the other thing that we talk a lot about in, in the book, Brain Weaver, is that uh, that people can engage their spirituality in other ways. Uh, a lot of people come up to me and say, you know, well, my spirituality is my music or my spirituality is my art or something like that. So art, creativity, walking out in nature, 
Um, even science, you know, for scientists, sometimes just you know, exploring the world and, and learning, and, and you know, that has a spiritual piece to it. Uh, and, and many of the famous scientists over the years, uh, you know, even people like Einstein, talk so much in spiritual terms, even though they're heavily involved in the scientific side of things. So, so that spiritual side, which to me is the side of ourselves that wants to connect with the world, uh, wants to connect with something greater than ourselves. That helps ground ourselves. That is something that all of us have the potential to be able to do and to explore. It's a matter, again, there's not a one size fits all. And each person really has to take some stock into how they do it, what has meaning to them. And some of our other research studies over the years that we've talked about in some of our other books, it's the ability to kind of buy into, if you will, whatever it is that you're doing. So if you just go to a, a meditation class to sit there and close your eyes and breathe, okay, you know, you might feel a little bit better, you might relax a little bit and de-stress. But if it's something that you really can engage in and really take part in and feel strongly about, then it's going to have a much more dramatic effect on you and on your brain. And that's part of why religious and spiritual, you know, more traditional religious and spiritual beliefs are very valuable because they typically come with a great deal of buy-in. So if somebody loves to go to church, they, you know, it's because they, it has meaning to them and it's important to them and they engage it fully and they do the prayers and they do the services and they, uh, they, they, they do Bible studies and they do all these things. So the, the more that you do all of that, the more that spiritual side of you becomes a part of your overall health and well-being and the health of your brain. Yeah, it sounds like it's really the act of being present in whatever the spiritual practice may be, right? It's like bringing your entire self to it which is Absolutely. lovely because that's what meditation is, <laughs> right? Is this idea of like, can I show up fully for it and be here for just this one activity that I'm doing in this moment? That's so fascinating. And then in the book, I loved that you included actual brain images. I thought I had never seen that. And I thought it was really cool to look at. And I wonder, you taught you have images from like a, a regularly creative person to a highly creative person, meditators, a, a bunch of different images in there where you talk a little bit about what you see as we engage these practices. Well, I think one of the most, you know, I, I, we've been uh, fortunate to do studies of people doing all different kinds of spiritual practices over the years. Uh, I think we counted at least about 150 to 200 people doing all different kinds of things from all different traditions. And um, I, there's a couple of really important take-home points, I think, with the research. So, so part of it is, as you mentioned, I mean, we like to show those scans because you can see the brain in action. You can see what it's doing in a, during a particular practice of some kind. And that's something that's just interesting enough to see. And as you mentioned, our emotions come from our brain. Our spirituality is deeply connected with our brain. So just seeing that relationship is, is very helpful. But one of the take-home messages to me is that there isn't just this one spiritual part of the brain. There isn't some part of the brain that when you sit down to meditate, suddenly it turns on. Uh, if you walk into a church or a synagogue, that one part of the brain turns on. No, it's, it's so many different parts of the brain. And for those people who, who are listening who do have some type of rich religious or spiritual part of their lives, I think they can appreciate that because so often the religious or spiritual part of ourselves 
really does cut across so many different domains of what our brain can do. It, it may have something to do with the cognitive processes, uh, how we think about things, how we understand ourselves, how we understand meaning and purpose in the world, for example. It might be emotional. We might feel love or joy or awe or something like that. Uh, we it has to do with our behaviors, how we think about our our lives, what kind of job we want to have, how we how we're going to interact and engage with our friends and with our family. So you know, there's and and even even practices like meditation, which obviously is a big focus of of, of your podcast and what you talk to people about. You know, there's so many different approaches to meditation that can focus just on a body function like breathing. Uh, or it can be on an image or on a mantra, or, you know, it can be more cognitive, it can be more emotional. And so lots of different parts of the brain become involved depending on what a person is doing. And, and what I ultimately like to say is that, uh, you know, rather than just one part of the brain that gets activated, it's really the entire brain that can become part of these processes. And from the integrative medicine perspective, since our brain and our body are so deeply connected, if there's a spiritual part of ourselves, it's really, it's all of us, you know, it's the whole thing of who we are. And, uh, and, and again, that, that's what our research really shows. And that's why we like to talk about and show the, the scans because, uh, you know, picture paints a thousand words basically. And, and it really does help us say, oh, okay, you know, that's what, what happens when my frontal lobe turns on because I'm focused on my breathing. Um, oh, that's what happens in my limbic system because that's the emotional centers that make me feel joy when I, when I sing a, a hymn in church or something like that. So, so there's so many different ways of looking at what's going on in our brain and how that relates to the spiritual side of who we are. And I loved that you highlighted a particular study. I think you looked at 30, I'm going to call them very advanced meditators that had done 9,000 hours of meditation or more and 30 people who had just gone through an eight-week MBSR course, like a basic mindfulness course. And you saw changes in both brains. You don't have to be a meditator for a decade in a cave in the Himalaya mountains to reap the benefits. Well, yes. And I, I think that's another really important take-home message here, which is, yes, I, I think a lot of people say, oh yeah, well, meditation. Well, I, I don't have the time for that. I can't, I can't spend hours a day in meditation. I'm not going to fly off to Tibet and, uh, and sit on a mountaintop for the next seven years. So, you know, what the research does show is that these kinds of practices can have, uh, can be effective over very short periods of time. In fact, you know, some studies have shown that, I mean, even if you're just uh, sitting at your desk or getting ready to, to you know, have a, a, a stressful phone conversation with your boss, if you just sit there for 30 seconds or a minute and just spend some time with some deep breathing exercises, just focusing on your breath, focusing on just calming yourself down, that can have a very powerful effect over a very short period of time. And, and yes, I mean, we, we've done some studies. Uh, one of our studies, we took people who had never meditated before, and we had them do a, a meditation called Kirtan Kriya, which was uh, 12 minutes a day. And, we, and they did that for eight weeks, and that changed their brain very dramatically, and it reduced depression and anxiety symptoms and improved their cognitive processes for 12 minutes a day. You know, so again, it's not something that requires hours and hours. Now, goes back to our point about engagement. I mean, arguably speaking, the more you do it, the bigger the effect, the longer the effects might last and so forth. But people don't have to do it for long periods of time to derive benefit from it and to derive significant benefit from it. Mm -hmm. The last thing I want to mention on my list is that I noticed that you 
did a really lovely job of highlighting the the importance of balance. Hmm. And I thought that that was so valuable as I was reading it. I I could see how it would be easy to be like, well, I, I just can't do it all, right? Like who has time to do all these things and I'm just tired and hungry and whatever, stressed, you know? And so we bring this element of balance and it's not about doing everything perfectly every single day, correct? Correct, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, balance really does ask us to think about, you know, how do we achieve that balance? And, and part of what we talk about, for example, in Brainweaver is for each person to, to kind of think about what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, um, how they can use their strengths to help them with their weaknesses, and how they can do certain things to help reduce the, the effect of the weaknesses on that overall balance. But uh, as you mentioned to me, the, the other piece of the balance is, is that it balance means something a little bit different for each person. So, you know, some people who are very extroverted, they, their social side is huge for them. And somebody else who might be introverted, their social side might not be that big. And that's okay. You know, just the fact that our social world uh, and our social selves is very important doesn't mean that we need to be out in the world, you know, 24-7. Some people, a few hours is, is, is a lot. Other people need to be out there for 20 hours. You know, it, it sort of depends. So each person has to find their own balance. And, and within that, of course, and, and part of what the beauty of, of the brain and the body is, is that we work towards a state called homeostasis, that, that when we do get deflected out of that balance, it, it sort of just naturally brings us back. So, you know, look, we, we all face various stressors in our lives. And when we're in a very stressful situation, we have something big going on at work, or we're worried about somebody who's sick or something like that. Well, you know, that's going to knock us out of that balance. And that's okay. I mean, again, that, that's part of how our body and our brain are able to work, that we can be kind of kicked out of our balance. We can kind of address that and then work towards bringing ourselves back into the balance that we typically have, that we try to strive for naturally. And that's why, you know, the more we can strengthen those four different pillars, the better off we ultimately are in helping to maintain that balance. So if we do eat well, well, then when we, we wind up with a little bit of an infection, or if we, you know, dealing with some particular stressor in our lives, that part is still okay. And that helps us to maintain the balance a little bit more effectively. If psychologically we get into kind of a bad mood for a while because we're very worried about something, that's okay. As long as we can kind of ultimately work ourselves through it and then bring ourselves into that better balance that we start with. So, um, so a lot of what weaving a, a healthy brain is about is, is getting that that weave together in as, as uh, in an integral way, an integrated way as possible, so that when we do get deflected out of that balance in different ways, it is okay, and it is something that we can kind of uh, recover from and bring ourselves back into the balance as easily as possible. But, but that's a, a lot of time we spend in brain. We were talking about, you know, where are the balances? How do they work? And, and the brain itself. I mean, it is just remarkable how our brain itself is balanced when, you know, we have a left and a right side, but they, they look very similar. And for the most part, it's the same amount of activity in both sides and, and our emotional sides and our cognitive processes balance each other out. Uh, and, and, uh, and our different emotions balance each other out and our body and our brain balance each other out. So, so it's just these constant, uh, integrative ways of thinking about our brain and our body and ultimately our, our, our health and our well-being. I love that message so much. And it, it just, I think, lands at such an important moment in our, our 
collective well-being. Um, so, Dr. Newberg, I have a personal question for you. Do you meditate yourself? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, so, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning, part of where I have come on my own path uh, is to explore kind of the nature of reality. And, I, you know, I mentioned that I first started out with a very kind of scientific approach, and then it became much more contemplative and much more philosophical. And so the meditation that I do, which I, I certainly have a pretty rich meditative life, has been a little bit of my own concoction, if you will. Um, and so it has been my continued pursuit of these questions. And, and I spend my own meditation time uh, contemplating kind of the nature of reality, the nature of mind, the nature of consciousness. And so it, it's not done so much specifically for stress-related purposes, but uh, but perhaps I would say it's most likely or most consistent with the idea of a spiritual purpose, which is to help define what that connection is and, and how uh, I personally think about my own balance and my own perceptions of the world and, and the reality around us. But but that, that's a very important part of, of my own life and how I begin to look at things. But because I have kind of gone down my own personal path, uh, I've tended not to engage in, in a substantial way some of the other kinds of practices that are out there. Again, you know, I think a really important take-home message for everyone is that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of different meditation practices that are out there. The research so far shows that all of them can potentially be, be beneficial for people, but they have to think a little bit about who they are as a person, what are their goals, and how do the goals match with what the goals of that particular practice are? I encourage people to talk to the teachers that they might go to. Um, so, you know, if you want to reduce stress, you know, there's a lot of meditation practices that help with that. But go to a teacher and say, you know, well, this is my, these are the things that I'm dealing with. Is this something that your practice would be able to help me address? And if they say yes, then, you know, you can try it for a period of time. If they think that something else might be better, then, you know, you can try something else. And you mentioned some of the other kinds of practices like movement meditations, like Tai Chi or yoga for people who really just like to kind of sit there, maybe Tai Chi or yoga isn't the right thing. And for other people who love to move, then maybe it's much better. So, uh, but then ultimately it is a little bit of trial and error and you have to kind of engage it, try it for a period of time, a reasonable amount of time, a month or two, and see how you're doing with it and, and how comfortable it feels. And, uh, you know, if everything seems to be working well and it seems to be helping you, then you can continue to engage it. And of course, if you feel like some, you know, the meditation is actually increasing your stress or creating more problems for you, then, then explore the other options because there are so many other options out there. But each person, you know, ultimately has to find the, the, the practice or practices that really works well for them. Sometimes it can be multiple ones, but, um, uh, and, 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 and that may be sort of, you know, a final point about just the different types of practices, which is that, um, uh, you know, un unfortunately, the kind of the piece of data that we're really missing right now is which practice works best in which kind of circumstance or for which kind of person. You know, we, I, I, if you came to me with an ear infection, I know what antibiotic to give you because I know what kind of uh, bacteria are in there. And I'll give you a different antibiotic than if you have a skin infection, because it's a different kind of thing, but they're all infections. Um, so, you know, here you're saying, and they're all antibiotics, but they're just different kinds. So, you know, we don't have data that tells us that if you're, you know, a 60 year old who is dealing with the loss of a spouse, what's the right meditation for you and how that's different 
from a college student who's stressed about finals and, and, and what their future, you know, like, so we all have different things that we might be striving for and, and people have spiritual goals and, and, and religious or spiritual paths that they're following. So we, we don't fully know what are the right, you know, we don't have a clear delineation of that. But again, in Brainweaver, we try to talk people through thinking about who they are as a person, uh, how that matches up with different kinds of practices and helps to at least get that process started. Yeah, you know, you remind me, one of the questions I think I get most often is, will meditation help me with depression or PTSD? It's one of the two. Those are the two most popular I get. Will meditation help me? And I, I think it's the hardest question in the world to answer because I sort of have to say, I, I don't know. The science is promising and it's helped me very much in my own life. And let's try it. I wonder if you have any other comments around that. Yeah, well, I mean, I, that, that's very similar to my answer that, you know, the, the research suggests certainly that different kinds of practices can be very helpful for PTSD and depression and anxiety and stress. It's not a one size fits all. So, you know, if somebody is trying a practice and it's not helping, uh, you know, I mean, you know, given it a, you know, an appropriate amount of time, then, um, you know, maybe try a different one. And, and uh, you know, again, we, we also shouldn't forget the possibility of combined interventions. So, you know, again, combining the biology with the spiritual and so forth. So, you know, you might need an antidepressant to help you to feel less depressed so that you can actually engage the meditation practice more effectively. And then as you engage the meditation practice more effectively, that sort of synergizes with the medication to make you even less depressed so that at some point you can come off the medication and then you can just continue with the meditation part. So, you know, there's different, and then again, the other pieces, the diet and nutrition and the, so, you know, all those different things. But if your brain is, you know, is not able to even start the process, then that can really become an issue for people. So, so people do have to, to, make sure that they're taking care of their body as best as possible, uh, as naturally as possible, uh, using medications when necessary as well, but then to bring in all these other pieces, the diet and nutrition and the social interactions and the spiritual practices, all of those things together can, can work very, very well in helping people to achieve the, the, their optimal brain health and, and maintain that brain health. I have so appreciated this conversation today, Dr. Newberg. Thank you. Is there anything I didn't ask you about that you wanted to highlight today? Well, other than the million other questions about the nature <laughs> of reality and free will and consciousness. Nah, I, I'm down. You got another hour. Let's stay. I'll come back and we'll do that. <laughs> I would love that. I would love that. Uh, well, thank you. Brainweaver is out and available everywhere you get books, correct? Yes, absolutely. And uh, people certainly can go to my website, which is Andrew Newberg. Uh, N-E-W-B-E-R-G.com if they're interested in learning more about Brainweaver or any of the other uh, books that I, I have written that uh, deal a little bit more specifically with the spiritual discussion. Uh, we wrote a book, uh, How God Changes Your Brain, How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain, that really talk a lot about these different aspects of the relationship between the brain and our spiritual selves, the field of neurotheology. Yeah, it is fascinating. I have put several of them in my uh, shopping cart. So. Sounds great. Thank you. I will include all the links in the show notes for my listeners. Dr. Newberg, thank you so much. This has been a total pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mindful Minute. If you're enjoying these episodes, please consider leaving me a review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps others to find the show. 
To learn more about my live classes, virtual meditation retreats, my meditation app Shoreline, or to make a donation to the show, please visit MerylArnett.com. Thanks again. I'll see you next week.